I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of News World, as a lead-up to the presidential election next fall, I want to devote an episode about where we are as a country, what we should be thinking about as we look at the future. I think the 2020 election is a very important topic, and it really relates to whether or not we can reframe and redevelop the United States as a productive, unified society. We need to have a bipartisan conversation about what is important to us as Americans. Let's look at the facts. Why do some things work and others do not? And what do we have to do to fix these issues? As you know, I am a Republican and a conservative, but I think the conversation has to be an American conversation, not just a partisan conversation, because the country belongs to all of us. The conversation needs to be what's working, what isn't, and the fact is 
We cannot remain an extraordinary country without profound and deep reforms. And this is my first effort to describe what I think the 2020 issues are and how our decisions this year will impact the future of our children and grandchildren. In 1932, the Republican Party had been dominant basically since the Civil War, since 1860, and had dominated the presidential races of 1920, 24, and 28. So if you had said to somebody in 1932 that Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he won the presidency, was going to bring an approach to government, an approach to political ideology, a network of very smart publicists and academics, and his basic approach would shape American government from 1932 to 2016. While there would be occasional uprising against it, Barry Goldwater in 64 being a good example, or efforts at the margin to change it, Ronald Reagan would be a good example, that in fact it wouldn't be directly taken on in a serious way with a sustainable effort from 1932 until 2016. Now, if you can imagine that President Trump ultimately evolves what I'll call for the moment Trumpism in parallel to the way that Roosevelt launched the New Deal And then as the New Deal began to lose momentum, the combination of President Kennedy being assassinated and President Johnson then winning a gigantic election landslide over Barry Goldwater led to the Great Society, which was in a sense a deeper, bigger, more expensive, and more liberal building block on top of the New Deal. So that the institutions, if you go through Washington today, you drive past the Department of the Interior built during the Roosevelt era. You drive past building after building, which either Franklin Delano Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson created to be populated by bureaucrats to run the country. So if you imagine, and this will horrify some people, that Trumpism took effect and had the same pattern as the New Deal, you could imagine a system that would last out to about 2096. Not that it'll be a partisan system. After all, Eisenhower won, Nixon won, Reagan won, both of the Bushes won. So it wasn't that you couldn't have occasionally partisan exchanges, but they were winning within the framework of the New Deal majority. And so I've been fascinated my entire career going back to 1958 with this question of how do you create a governing majority, and fundamentally shift the way the system operates. Because in the end, if you can't do that, you eventually backslide and find yourself back in the old order again. And that's, in a sense, what we mean by the deep state. And I would say, by the way, for anybody who wants a sense of the deep state that is entertaining, amusing, and educational all at once, there are two TV series which became books, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, which are created by 
one of Margaret Thatcher's advisors, who had a very jaundiced view of the deep state. And it captures so perfectly how the career civil service pacifies and manipulates the elected officials that anybody who would really like a sense of what deep states are like would be well served, even though it's a British series. It certainly recaptures my experience in dealing with the large bureaucracies in the American system. Well, all of this was an outcome, in a sense, of FDR and of the progressive movement, and of a sense that if you could hire enough really smart people and put them in really orderly bureaucracies, that they could somehow create a better country and impose that better country on the American people. And that's been going on now since 1932. So I was fascinated because I wanted to know, how would you go about changing it? The most successful modern example of that kind of change was Prime Minister Thatcher. She had a very single principle, and I'd I'd had the great privilege of working with her on occasion and talking with her at length. Her approach was, she said, look, first you win the argument, and then you win the vote. But in order to win the argument, you have to know what you believe in. And Thatcher, in that sense, was a remarkable person. She was just old enough that her father had really convinced her to be Churchillian. And she saw herself, I think, in a Churchillian role. If Churchill was saving British liberty from Nazis, she was saving British liberty from socialism and the unions. And she saw it as a war. There's a remarkable book called There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters by Claire Berlinski. And Berlinski, who was a graduate student in Britain during Thatcher's period and was anti-Thatcher, as all good graduate students were, years later came to realize that Thatcher really was absolutely irreplaceable. And she said it came down to two things, that Thatcher really did believe that the combination of socialism and big unions was going to destroy parliamentary democracy and end freedom as we've known it in Great Britain. And so she saw herself with two parallel fights. One fight was intellectual and moral. And more than any elected official in my lifetime, she laid out the case that socialism is just plain immoral, that it involves theft. As she once put it, the problem with socialism is you run out of other people's money to spend. And she went at it with an intensity and a toughness that the left hated fully as much as the modern American left hates Donald Trump. But she didn't back down. She knew what she believed. There's this marvelous moment when she has first become the leader of the conservatives. And for them to have a woman as the leader at that point was a real turning point and a real breakthrough and tells you how tough she was. And they go to their big annual conference, her first conference as the leader. And about halfway through her speech, she says, a number of you ask me what our platform is. Well, let me tell you, and she reaches into her purse, which must have been huge, and she pulls out Hayek's book on the Constitution, which is massive, and she slams it on the table, and she said, this is our platform. And the point she was making was that Hayek, who was probably the most articulate and methodical intellectual taking on socialism in the period after World War II, had written a book called The Road to Serfdom, in which he said, look, once you start down central planning, 
you inevitably could become a serf and the bureaucrats inevitably become aristocrats. And they have all the power and you have none. And so he really tries to lay out the notion that you're dealing with the reality that socialism is inherently destructive of a free society. And around Hayek's writing, an entire school grew up based largely on work that had been done a half century earlier in what's called the Austrian School of Economics. And the Austrian School had a very simple insight, which is at the heart of what I'm about to lay out for you. They said, look, the reason you can't have central planning work is that no central planner knows enough. And the example they used was the fish market before the refrigerator. They said, you know, on Friday when you went down to buy fish, it depended on what you were going to cook that night. If you were going to cook the fish as the main course in an elegant meal, you were going to pay a lot of money for the fish, and you're going to buy the freshest, best fish you could find. If you're, in fact, going to put it into a fish stew, you're going to buy a lot less expensive cut of fish, and it can be, in fact, a little bit older. So, you know, it might have come in yesterday instead of today. And they walked through this whole notion that no bureaucrat can know for you on any given day what you're going to value, and that that's why the market is more powerful than a bureaucracy, because the market lets you set the terms of what you want to pay for the things you want to get. Now, that concept that it is literally impossible to have a centralized bureaucracy know enough to be able to make the decisions should lead you then to look around you. Look at the scale of your State Department of Education. Look at the scale of the Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of the Interior trying to run a continental-sized country. And so there's this whole model that has grown up that in many ways grew out of a well-meaning belief that we could organize with professionals who would be wise, who would make good decisions, who would not allow personal traits to interfere. Well, as Thatcher understood, that was all baloney. And in fact, in Britain, it was compounded because in that era, they had genuine socialists who hated free enterprise, who wanted the government to run everything, and who really did believe that the government could run the auto industry, the health business, you name it, the government would do it better. And she came along and she said, no, I want to reestablish a society where individuals can go out and start companies. I want to reestablish a society where you can work hard, you can have take-home pay, you can buy a house, you can buy a car, but you are being rewarded for being an effective individual, not for being part of a collectivity. And one of the things that I think made her remarkable was that she really thought a lot about what she believed. I asked a really good friend of mine, Gay Gaines, who had known both Thatcher and Reagan very well. And Thatcher used to come and stay with her after she retired. And I said, what did you think of Thatcher and Reagan as public speakers? Because Reagan was very effective, very attractive person, but I think in the end did not move the country as much as Thatcher did. And this is what Gay wrote me back. She said, it's so hard for me to answer because I love both as people. She said, Thatcher left no doubt in anyone's mind what she thought, and her directness was persuasive. But Reagan was endearing and funny. He grabbed people's hearts as well as their minds. 
Oh dear, I'm partial to both because they were both so honest and straightforward. But I will vote for Thatcher because she thought every word through so thoroughly and passionately believed every word she spoke, close quote. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I think if you look at Trump's formal speeches, you are seeing the beginning of a Trumpism which could be directly competitive in effectiveness with Thatcher or Reagan and directly competitive with Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Next, we'll look at the record low numbers in unemployment and what it means for America. When it comes to your estate planning, why not leave behind a lasting legacy that will also make a significant impact? After all, we can't take our money with us, but we can use it to improve the lives of the precious animals who call Delta Rescue home. Delta Rescue is the only no-kill, care-for-life home for more than 1,500 dogs, cats, and horses. Founder Leo Grillo left a career in Hollywood to devote his life full-time to caring for these beautiful creatures. Delta Rescue is located on a 115-acre mountaintop ranch in Los Angeles, beautifully landscaped and surrounded by rolling hills, the perfect sanctuary for our lost furry friends. You know how I feel about animals. They are pure souls who only want to give love and get love unconditionally. What Leo Grillo is doing at Delta Rescue is beyond extraordinary helping to save and care for these innocent creatures so they can live safely and in peace. For more information, go directly to deltarescue.org newt and request our free estate planning package. That's deltarescue.org newt. And due to the overwhelming response over the holidays, the free movie, The Rescuer, is still featured on our website. It's an award-winning documentary about Leo's two-year journey to rescue a family of 21 dogs abandoned in the wilderness. Stream it for free now. Go to deltarescue.org newt today. Make it your New Year's resolution. If you look at his speech at Davos in 2018, and then again his speech at Davos this year, they're astonishing speeches. I mean, here's somebody who all of the sophisticated elites around the world know is inadequate, and how can you really take him seriously? And yet he goes in, he's very direct, he is very, very clear, and the result is that people end up suddenly confronting something they had never thought about. I'm just going to give you one or two examples because this is the beginning of a proposition that I want you to think about. Trump is talking, remember, to leaders from Europe, Asia, Latin America, whose economies are a mess. He's talking to people who have very high unemployment. He's talking to people who can't create any jobs. And you would think that if facts mattered, the fact that we've created 7 million new jobs since Trump became president... The fact that we have the lowest unemployment rate in modern American history, 3.5%, the fact that we have the lowest African-American unemployment rate in history, women have a lower unemployment rate than any time since 1953, and by the way, 
For the first time, a majority of the workforce is female. Latinos have the lowest unemployment numbers in history. And if you think about it, this didn't happen as an accident. And this is really what I want to focus on because it's the Republican challenge and the Republican opportunity. We actually achieve great things. We just don't know how to explain any of them. We don't know how to get across to people. You know, it's not like AOC and her friends could do what Trump did. They don't have a clue how an economy works. It's not like somebody like Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren could do what Trump did. They actually believe things that kill jobs. They believe things that destroy the economy. They believe things that raise the unemployment rate. So just consider some examples. Because of Trump's leadership, the corporate tax rate went from 35% down to 21. People got bonuses. The tax cuts estimated to raise the average household's income by $4,000. Because we'd brought down the tax rate, big companies suddenly said, oh, I think I'll bring money back home from overseas. Apple alone said they'd probably invest $350 billion in the U.S. over the next five years. Trump had a great line and said, quote, regulation is stealth taxation. Now think about that. What you have is a system where we have mounds of regulations. We have so many regulations you can't imagine it. And the result has been that Trump, for the first time in my lifetime, you have a president who's actually working at it. In his 2018 speech, he said that so far they'd set out to set two regulations for every new one, but they actually had gotten 22 killed for every new one. If you're a small business person or you're a family doctor, if you're a teacher who'd like to focus on the students, these regulations drive you crazy. And so one of the major things that made America more competitive, enabled us to work at developing more jobs, was that we both cut taxes and we began to thin out regulations. We also had a very aggressive pro-energy program. And this, of course, is an exact reversal from where the left was. Trump actually believed that it was good for America to be energy independent. He believed it was good for us to have very dramatic investments in oil and gas so that the result would be that we are today independent of any other country in the world. We can actually provide surplus for Europeans. We're now talking about exporting liquefied natural gas to Europe in direct competition with the Russians. You're talking about a very, very different model. Knowing the Europeans, there's this crisis because they really would like to have jobs. They just don't want to do anything that creates them. They'd really like to have lower unemployment. They just can't do anything that would get them there. They really understand that their bureaucracies aren't functional. They just can't deal with them. If you've watched it all, you've seen how rapidly the French go crazy. If you, in fact, have any serious effort to change the French system so that the gradual pleasant decay is better than serious reform. And that's part of what makes the American system so much different. We actually do have a system here where on occasion we can have a very powerful, very dramatic reform that shocks people. Now, to give you a sense, total number of jobs that they currently claim has been gained under President Trump is 7 million. As we've gotten more and more jobs, we're actually seeing wages go up and very opposite of what the left thinks, wages have been going up faster for the bottom one-fourth of people. So we're actually gradually seeing people rising out of poverty, and they're moving in a direction that's very positive. 
At the same time, the net worth of the bottom half of wage earners has increased by 47%, three times faster than the increase for the top 1%. The fact is that we have been creating manufacturing jobs, we've been creating service jobs, we've been creating healthcare jobs, but as part of that, we've tried to focus also on reaching out and getting this into communities that don't have jobs. So they've now created nearly 9,000 opportunity zones, something I first worked on with Jack Kemp back in the late 70s. And these are places with less regulation, lower taxes, and where people can literally invest in long-term investments and have zero capital gains tax. And the result is people are starting to put money into these opportunity zones, which are all located in communities that don't have jobs. So again, as an effort here to use the free market to move people, to give them a chance to go to work, to give them a chance to have a better future. In those poverty areas, the 35 million Americans who live there have already seen their home values rise by over $22 billion. So you have a double effect here. You have a better chance to get a job. The job you get has a better chance to rise in what it's paying you. Your investments, whether it's your home or it's your pension or your 401k, all of those are also moving in the right direction. And the result has been we are seeing a consistent move in the right direction. I raise all this as background because here is an opportunity for conservatives in general and Republicans in particular to make the case that this is principled. This isn't happening by random luck. It's not happening because of a solar eclipse. It's not happening because of witchcraft. It's happening because we have been methodically, systematically freeing up Americans, focusing on the opportunity to have a better future, and focusing on the concept that you ought to have the right to go out, work hard, create a better future, and keep most of the money. Now, having said that, here's the challenge. The news media doesn't want to cover any of this. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the problem Reagan faced compared to Thatcher and the problem that both Reagan and Thatcher faced compared to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We have today a very large alternative system of power. It's a combination of the deep state bureaucracy, the academic professors, Hollywood, the news media, left-wing activist groups, and the Democratic Party. All of those form together a unit. And that unit, they move as a herd. In An Inconvenient Truth in 2006, Al Gore said, within the decade, there'll be no more snow in Kilimanjaro. Turned out not to be true. He said, many scientists are now warning they're moving closer to several points that could within as little as 10 years make it impossible for us to avoid irretrievable damage to the planet's habitability for human civilization. That was 2006. Well, 10 years would have been 2016. The planet seems to be doing okay. There are billions of people who seem to be surviving. Gore, who, by the way, I knew in the 80s when he was worried about the whole concept of nuclear winter, Gore is an example of the modern left. That is, he's a catastrophist. He's not happy unless he's miserable. Here's an example from AOC, one of the most recent examples of somebody who doesn't know anything but is enthusiastically, energetically happy to tell you about it. Millennials and people and, you know, Gen Z and all these folks that come after us are looking up and we're like, 
the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. I just want to suggest to you that the world won't end in 12 years. That it takes somebody who's either lying or just unimaginably stupid to believe that. She points out, for example, what's not realistic is Miami not existing in a few years. I want to reassure you, Miami will exist. But it's important to understand, no facts matter. This is all about emotion, which the most recent example, which is Greta Thunberg, who essentially is a public relations invention. In an objective world where any kind of knowledge mattered, she wouldn't be considered a serious person. But she actually has to speak at Davos because given the left's ability to talk itself into almost anything, she's one of the new examples of sincere, naive, passionate commitment without any kind of knowledge or any kind of accountability. Now, I cite all this because it's not just in the environment. For example, in 1989, Samuelson's economic textbook, which is the most widely used textbook in American economic education, said the following, quote, the Soviet economy is proof that contrary to what many skeptics had earlier believed, a socialist command economy can function and even thrive, close quote. I want you to have in your head an image of Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, Zimbabwe, the Soviet Union itself. The last time it came out was the 1989 edition, and of course the Soviet Union disappeared two years later. And we discovered that virtually every estimate the CIA had made was wrong by maybe a factor of two. That is, the Soviet economy was much smaller than we thought it was, much weaker and much less capable of change. Samuelson's textbook was basically an apologia for socialism. He says, for example, socialists often advocate the peaceful and gradual extension of government ownership, evolution by ballot rather than revolution by bullet. Well, watch Venezuela. Watch China. Watch Cuba. But I'm going through these things because there's a core problem here. As wrong as they are, we seem to be incapable of defeating them. We seem to be incapable of taking them head on. Coming up, how political leaders are failing our biggest cities. So the question has to be raised, how do you organize a movement for really dramatic change? And it's fascinating to me, when cities collapse, for example, the last Republican mayor of Detroit served from 1957 to 1962. So as, as Detroit has decayed for a period now of 58 years under Democratic mayors, and today, 36% of the people living in Detroit are at or below the poverty level. In Chicago, the last Republican mayor served in 1931. The poverty rate in Chicago is 19.5%, one out of every five, basically. In St. Louis, the last Republican mayor was 1949. 
in Philadelphia, the last Republican mayor left office in 52. In Baltimore, the last Republican mayor was 1967. In 2018, Baltimore saw the largest population loss in a single year since 2001. The city lost 7,300 people, 1.2% of its population in one year. The Baltimore Sun also said, quote, the city's scary record of 343 homicides in 2017 affirms the city's well-known reputation as a dangerous place to live. The city's outrageous property tax of $2.24 per $100 of property assessed value is more than double the surrounding jurisdictions. So what you have is a dangerous city with very few jobs and a large number of poor people with a very high property tax in order to sustain the bureaucracy who then re-elect the government while it destroys the city. And remember, just in the case of Baltimore, the last Republican mayor left in 1967. Now, why am I raising that? Because you go from city to city to city, and Republicans have never successfully in modern times made the case that we need an alternative model. A good example of this is fighting crime. We know what works to fight crime. Rudy Giuliani applied it. He brought down the murder rate in New York by a remarkable degree. By the time Bloomberg had continued implementing Giuliani's model, they had brought down the murder rate by over 80%. Staten Island, which has about 600,000 people, had so few murders that it was statistically off the charts. There was no other city of 600,000 comparable to how safe Staten Island was. And how did they do it? They applied very practical, very straightforward steps starting with a theory called broken windows that said, if you live in a neighborhood that has graffiti on the wall and broken windows, you're going to get a lot more crime because you're sending a signal that crime is okay, that disorder is okay. That model was applied very relentlessly in New York, and it changed things almost literally overnight. You can read about this both in Rudy Giuliani's book on leadership, which is a remarkable case study of how to move a very, very large bureaucracy. Or in Bill Bratton's book, Turnaround, Bratton was actually the police commissioner who implemented it. And it works. Now, here's the problem. Liberals hate the concept of effective policing. What we've had happen in this country is a pattern in which minorities are told the police are your enemy, even if the police, by the way, are the same minority as you are. So you end up with liberals who hate the police because they hate the law. In case after case now, you have elected district attorneys who are saying they won't enforce the law. There are principles here. If you don't enforce the law, if you have, as New York now has, a no-bail policy so that somebody can go and rob a store, get picked up, release themselves on their own recognizance, go back the next morning and rob another store, and release themselves again on their own recognizance, guess what's going to happen? you're going to have an explosion of criminals because you just sent a signal, it's okay. We don't mind if you rip us off. And when you start getting an explosion of criminals who steal, then you start to get criminals who hurt people. And then you start getting people who get killed. And so what you're seeing happen in city after city is the left is creating a culture in which the police are bad, the criminals are good, the district attorney's job is to represent social left-wing values, not to enforce the law. By the way, they very often will say they're going to decide what laws they're going to enforce. Well, what does that mean? It means if you're a liberal, you're probably not going to get prosecuted. 
If you're a conservative, they may well find a way to prosecute you. So I've laid all this out to suggest the following characteristic. We're at the edge of the potential because of Trump's personal skills and because of the way this whole fight is evolving, that we could have a principled argument over the nature of reality. And we could have a conversation with the American people that says, look, do you like having the lowest unemployment rate in modern times? Well, there's a way to keep doing that. Would you like to be safe in your neighborhood? There's a way to be doing that. Would you like to have schools where your children actually learn? There's a way to be doing that. But don't kid yourself and think that you can be for the old order which is failing and get a different result. And I think that a Republican Party, which looks carefully at what's working and looks carefully at what's failing and is prepared to stand up to the news media and prepared to have a principled conversation, not on a narrow partisan basis, but to say to everybody, if you want your children to get educated, we want to work with you. If you want your neighborhood to be safe, we want to work with you. If you'd like to make sure that there are more jobs and better jobs with higher incomes, we want to work with you. If you'd like to see your 401k and your pension plan go up in value, we want to work with you. So you could literally build an American conversation about the nature of reality. And you then have to just face one or two quick things. We have to be prepared to assume that, one, the news media will not help us. You have to shape arguments where the average person listening to you and listening to the hysteria of the news media and the hysteria of your opponent comes to the conclusion that reality is on your side, not their side. And that's a very important frame of reference. Second, you have to understand that it's going to be an argument. Thatcher refused to read the newspapers because she knew they were going to attack her every single day. And she didn't want to waste the emotional energy dealing with them. So she focused on doing her job. Very important. And I must say, one of the things I find the most amazing about Trump is three and a half years in getting his brains beaten out day after day by 85% of the news media, he cheerfully flies off to Davos on the opening day of the trial in the Senate. He just keeps moving forward. And I think he measures every judge that's approved, every regulation that's repealed, every new factory that opens up as a victory. And so he just keeps rolling. If we can learn to have this discussion and we can drive it home this fall and we can drive it home for all Americans and recognize that if we're right and it's an argument about fact and reality, that there's potentially an American coalition dramatically bigger than the Trump coalition and dramatically bigger than the Republican Party. But that requires us then to learn how to think this through. We have a chance to have more than an election. We have a chance to have a reasoned resetting of American civilization based on a fact-based conversation that again and again forces people to confront specific measurable facts and then draw conclusions. And I think if we can avoid slogans and we can avoid this classic negative stuff and avoid all the petty stuff, we might be astonished by the end of this year how much of the country wants to have low unemployment, opportunities for salary increases, better schools, safer neighborhoods, 
and a chance to create a country in which millions and millions of people go out on their own and invent their version of the American dream. And I think that there's a lot to learn from Franklin Roosevelt. There's a lot to learn from Ronald Reagan. There's a lot to learn from Margaret Thatcher. And if we're willing to learn it, I think uh, we might be astonished what can be accomplished over the next few years. I explore the topic of macro-microeconomic issues at newtsinnercircle.com. It's a subscription service where I offer insights and commentary on the issues that matter to me most. Join today at newtsinnercircle.com. You can read more about the Republican challenge in 2020 on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Tamara Coleman. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, I'm going to talk some about the various attacks on Chinese health, both human health and animal health. China's had a tough time over the last year and a half with the African swine flu almost wiping out their huge herd of pork and at the same time, they now have this coronavirus, which probably came out of an animal background. So join me. It's going to be a fascinating time to look at various challenges into the health of China, the Chinese, and their animals. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work.